This is Minds Worth Meeting from Stern Strategy Group, a podcast where we talk with some of the top thought leaders in the world, from business leaders and technology analysts. The way we interact with devices and our technologies is, is becoming conversational. It's becoming perceptual. It's becoming relational. To academics and researchers. There's nothing inherently good or bad about influence. Manipulative people can use influence. And great people with great ideas can use influence. And it's similar skills that we need to make the things happen and bring people on board. We welcome a new Mind Worth meeting in each episode. Here you'll find accessible, down-to-earth conversations about some of the most important topics of the day with the experts and leaders who are the top authorities in their fields. And now, here's Mind's Worth meeting. Welcome to Mind's Worth meeting. I'm Whitney Jennings. And I'm Justin Lewis from the Stern Speakers and Advisors team. We're kicking off a new season focused on innovation and technology experts with an exciting guest. Who do we have today, Justin? In this episode, I speak with tech investor and journalist Azim Azar, author of the award-winning book, The Exponential Age, and its ongoing companion newsletter, Exponential View. It was really a great conversation. I can't wait for people to hear it. And here it is now, our chat with Azim Azar. Azim Azar, welcome to Minds Worth Meeting. I appreciate you taking the time today. I'm so happy to be here, Justin. Thank you. So one of the things that we hear a lot about is people talk about futurists. And in the past, it was more science fiction. Today, it's not as much prediction as seeing trends, but you're an exponentialist. Tell me about the difference between a futurist and an exponentialist. Well, what I try to do is understand the underlying processes that are driving technologies uh, and driving them to get cheaper and more prevalent. And from that, I try to take a systems perspective. What does it mean when powerful technologies are cheaply or even freely available across our society? How does it change the systems? How does it change the shape of the workforce or how firms behave or which firms succeed? How does that change what industries exist? How does that roll up into the whole of the economy? How do these the availabilities of these new technologies change our values and expectations? And so that gets reflected in our culture and ultimately in our politics. And fundamentally, at the end of that, I'm really, really interested in the shape of the institutions, whether it's companies or laws or the way we vote and how those come under pressure from this underlying technology change. The reason I use the word exponential is that for the first time really in history, technologies of many, many different types are getting exponentially cheaper. That is double digit percentages cheaper every single year. So not just do we see an enormous price decline of core technologies in a lifetime, we might see it actually in a five-year business planning cycle. And that makes it a really, really interesting environment and an interesting set of processes to try to explore and make sense of and understand their ramifications, particularly for businesses. When I think about when I was a kid, when I was in middle school, which was about 30 years ago, I did a project with uh, stop motion video and I had to Mm -hmm. bring the whole hard drive of the computer in. It was an Apple Mac external hard drive, probably about seven pounds. These days, you got a gigabyte on a flash drive. That's right. It's hard for me to think about when my eight-year-old nieces are my age, what's the kind of stuff they're going to look back on and look at like that seven-pound hard drive? Do you have any ideas where we go from here? Or is it slowing down at this point? You know, I think it's a really good way of 
posing the question and going from the seven pound hard drive to the gigabyte flash drive. And then the question is, what would you need to believe for that trend to stop, right? We suddenly stop at gigabyte-sized flash drives. What would you need to believe that the trend will just continue linearly? So gigabyte this year, and it'll be two next year, and the three the year after that. And what would you need to believe that we're in an exponential age where these things will continue to ratchet up faster and faster and faster? My argument is that we're in the latter. So we can try to do some hypotheses. I mean, the first thing is that rather than thinking about adding one to the number, you should just multiply it by 10 instead. I mean, that's you know, one way of doing that. And so the gigabyte flash drive will become a 10 gigabyte flash drive or a 100 gigabyte flash drive. The other way to look at it is to divide the cost by 10. So today, if you went out and got a really, really professional, detailed genomic screen, not one of these consumer screens that you get for 100 bucks, but a detailed one, it might cost you a couple of thousand dollars, maybe a thousand dollars. We think that that'll come down in price by a factor of 10 within a few years and a factor of 10 within a few years after that. So by the time your nieces perhaps are in their 30s, that full human genome screen will cost a buck. I mean, less than the cost of a soda. What does that mean? Well, if you can get your genome screened for less than the cost of a soda, Mountain Dew, why would you just not get it done and have that information? And what does it then mean for us all to have that information in terms of our planning for our lives, our personalized health, and how we look after ourselves, how we even understand ourselves. And as far as the impacts on business, getting smaller, getting faster, getting cheaper, how are we everyday people going about work and life, how are we going to see that reflected back in manufacturing products and, and those kinds of things? You're asking me very hard questions because oh, um, it's, mu- <laughs> it's much easier for me to think about the underlying processes and see where the costs will go or could go or could plausibly go than it is to see second, third, fourth order effects. It's a bit like you've taken a ping pong ball and you've thrown it in a lead room and said, where's it going to be on the fifth bounce? It's a kind of chaotic system. So there are some things that we can see. So for example, forecasting that electric vehicles would completely replace gasoline vehicles within a matter of a decade was reasonably straightforward to do. And you could, you know, we were doing it six years ago. I certainly was doing it back then, seven years ago. On the impact of work, there are lots and lots of variables that we have to try to juggle in our head. And that means you have to be very active in asking those questions and ask them on an ongoing basis. So I will give you one example on work. Back in December, January, we had this flurry of large language models like um, Mm -hmm. the chat GPT and GPT-4. And some academics have been able to do pretty good studies on the impact of that technology in the workplace because they had early access to it. And, you know, one of my friends looked at sort of several thousand workers using these chatbots. And here are some of the takeaways. The first is that workers on average improved their productivity by 14%. The least performing workers improved it by 35%. So the worst got leveled up. The second was that with two months of work experience while using a chatbot to help you, you would acquire six months of work experience. So it's like that scene in the, in the Matrix where Keanu Reeves learns Kung Fu in 10 seconds. You know, right, I right. know Kung Fu. So what does that then mean for a workforce? Well, it means that, number one, your workforce will get up to speed much, much more quickly. You will, especially in high turnover jobs, get value from people much faster. People will start to have an impact
react more quickly, so maybe they'll be more satisfied. Your top performers will suddenly find themselves under pressure from moderate and below average performers. But there's a little kind of mystery wrapped in there, which is that it's the presence of the top performers that allows the AI system to properly advise the weaker performers. Okay. So mm. now you have to think about how do you measure your top performers? Because you can't just measure them on the work they do. You've got to measure them on the magic pixie dust that they spread around the AI system so the AI systems can train the weaker people. So that's just one little microcosm, but that's very much just in what I would call a first order effect of the technology. So it's not a second or third order effect. And we're going to have to come back and revise our view once these technologies get embedded. And, you know, I have lots of sort of possible scenarios of the different ways in which this could play out. But there are so many things that are contingent to a given firm, a given labor market, even the demographics of a country that one has to be a little bit circumspect about saying, and this is where it ends up. Right, right. I'm going to throw a little plug in. Is that the study by Eric Brynjolfsson? It is the study by Eric Brynjolfsson. We're, yeah. we're seeing a lot of uh, action on that the last couple of days. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. I want, I want to stick with that theme with the, the generative AI. A little while ago in your Exponential View blog, you said that ChatGPT has become a daily part of your process. So how are you using that for what you're doing every day? So we'll start with simple examples will be to summarize and extract the key points from YouTube videos. There's a lot of great material in YouTube videos and my team and I are very interdisciplinary. So we could be looking looking at you know, neuroscience, sodium ion batteries, advanced materials for fusion reactors, and that will just be a Wednesday morning. So the ability to very quickly navigate a two-hour video is really powerful, saves a lot of time. Of course, we use it for summarization of complex documents. So what I do is I will use GPT-4, as it happens, to summarize a long piece of research to essentially give me the waypoints, what is a key argument, richer than the abstract, that the author is trying to tell me. And then I can read the research with a sense of that map. It's a little bit like looking at a guidebook before right. you sort of wander around Sri Lanka or you know up to Machu Picchu. You have a sense of why you're there and what you're looking for. So we do that. But those are just another really basic uses. And I mean, if you're nice, and ask nicely, I might give you some of the more secret and advanced uses too. I would love to know the more secret and advanced <laughs> uses. You got me all okay, so, excited for it. So you have to understand how these uh, large language models work. They have a big complex representation that we don't quite understand of this enormous corpus of data, billions, trillions of words, large part of humanity's knowledge. But they're also probabilistic, which means that they're not necessarily great at specific facts. And we already have tools for specific facts, right? If you want to know the capital of France, there are lots of places you can go to get that data canonically. So I find that they're extremely good at layers of reasoning that I think of as being quite abstract. And, and so I will give you an example of one of these. I wanted to understand how authentic the big oil and gas companies were with their net zero commitments, their commitments to essentially phase out their entire carbon footprints. And this is a subject I know something about because a few years ago, I launched with uh, PwC, the first global survey of startups that were tackling climate change. We called it climate tech sector, and that's been running for a few years. So it's, it's something I, I do have some experience in. So I went to chat GPT-4 and I said to it, what criteria would you use to evaluate the authenticity of these oil and gas super majors in their commitments to, to net zero? And it came up with a few criteria. And then I said, look, give me more. And I forced it to go back and give me five or six. Right, right. So now I've got this laundry list of 10 or 11 criteria. I read them. They're all quite reasonable. I say, look, this is too many criteria. Please turn it into four criteria that are logically related such that the list is meaningful 
mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. And it goes away and comes back with this list of four criteria. One is about external messaging and auditing of those messages. A second is about their investment levels to transition. A third is about how well they audit their own internal processes. And there was some fourth one that I, I forget right now. So they all looked quite reasonable. And then I said, well, look, if you're going to evaluate these companies, and I'm pretty much typing in this sort of very, very slangy phrase, if you're going to evaluate these companies on these criteria, what is the one to five scale within each criterion? And it comes up with a one to five scale. And this is all taking seconds. And it's got it. And I say, okay, I don't quite like the way you've done it for item three, redo it. So now it's got this scale. And then I said, well, go and find the top 20 oil and gas super majors by revenue and evaluate them on this scale giving an equal weighting of 25% to each criterion and then rank order them by their overall commitment. And it zips off. 45 seconds later, I've got a completed table with all of these numbers in. Now, I know something about this sector. So I looked at it and I thought, this is pretty good, but I want to check. And so I found a friend of mine who is widely regarded as one of the top long-standing renewables, climate change, energy transition analysts in the world. And I sent it to him and I said, how accurate is this? And he goes, well, it's pretty accurate, right? I would argue with a few of the numbers, but not with the rank order. And in general, it looks really, really good. So that was one example of like a superpower where I use this tool and then I use that to kind of validate my assumptions and I got did some checking. So that's a really good example of using this beyond improving your tweets or summarizing sure. an email. This is, I would say, business analyst or associate at a consultancy level, two, three days work done in 45 seconds or a minute or two minutes. It's amazing. It really is. I want to stick with renewables and energies. Yeah. We're in an energy crisis right now. And one of the interesting things when we were writing up your bio for our website, you said that in the future, there could be an excess of energy. What do we need to start doing now to get to that future where we have an excess of energy? We're already on that path. And we're on that path because renewables are so cheap that it's easier to build excess provision than it is to build another gas plant. Renewables in 2020 became the cheapest form of new electricity, you know, even if you take out subsidies anywhere in the world. And the thing to understand is that what happened with the fossil industry is that energy prices are dependent fundamentally on commodity prices, which hem and haw according to market animal spirits and uh, cartels and geopolitics and whoever knows what else. Whereas the cost of renewables is related to learning curves. Learning curves are effectively the same thing that drove Moore's law to bring the price of semiconductors down. So you don't have that variability. All you have is a sort of beautiful force of learning that drives prices down. Now, of course, there are some sort of physical inputs into renewables. So there's polycrystalline silicon, for example, for solar panels, which can vary in price because there might be you know, supply constraints as there has been recently. But the kind of the fundamental force is to bring that price down. So with that, then you need to re start to rethink what an energy system looks like because renewables behave very, very differently to fossil but what we can say is the price of energy, at least within the context of renewables, is as expensive today as it ever will be. And you could never say that with oil-fired power stations, right? It was, sure. never, it was never going to happen. You could never make that commitment. And so then the thing about energy and excesses of energy is that with a system like that, you will overproduce energy at particular times, right? When it's particularly windy or when it's particularly sunny. And so you'll need some mechanism 
to sort of offtake that energy and do something with it, whether it's long term storage or whether it is certain types of industrial processes. And all of that requires a fundamental industrial economic shift in terms of how energy gets moved and energy gets used. But I'd say the final thing, which is that I really think that energy is ultimately prosperity, right? Energy is so closely tied to prosperity, good human outcomes. If you look at the countries with strong rights, great welfare, great incomes, they are all countries largely with high energy usage. There are some outliers like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, but in general, energy is the path to prosperity. And once we can drive the price down, even from a factor of 10 from where it is today, we will just use much, much more of it in order to deliver sustainable prosperity. One of the things I appreciate about what you do is you're optimistic about the future. You're not saying we're doomed. I feel like you're saying there are certain things we need to do. One of the phrases that stuck out with me the last time we talked is pragmatic optimism. Mm -hmm. When you look at where we are now as a whole, how far out can you take that optimism? The thing about technologies is that however good they are, however perfectly they work, there's going to be somebody on the wrong end of them. So even if you imagine that we could invent a perfectly safe car that never crashes, never hits a pedestrian and so on, well, let's think about who's harmed by that. Well, all Mm -hmm. the auto repairers and body shops, the entire car insurance industry. And so even though it's desirable to have such a magical technology, and I've just imagined it, I don't think we will build one of those in a short period of time, you can still see that there are these sort of negative consequences that can be more or less localized in a kind of complex interrelated economy, those things can spread. However, it's a much easier problem to solve if we're worrying about things like road death and damage to property. If we have these magical cars that simply can't crash and cause harm, than it is if we have really dangerous vehicles without brakes. And this is, I think, where the pragmatic part comes in, is it's not just all everything's going to be perfect in 10 years. It's we're on the path to getting better, but these are kind of what we need to look out for. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that kind of the way it's going? Yeah, we have to be aware that there are things to look out for. Some of them we know now. I don't want to be too Rumsfeldian about this, but some of them we know now. Some of them we know we'll need to know, and some of them we don't know we're going to need to know. Mm. Uh, And they're all going to emerge. But one thing I would think about is... Think about what culture has told us and history has told us. You will go around the world and you will meet people with the surname Baker, which means one point in time their parent was a baker, or Cooper, which means they were a barrel maker, or Mataiwala, which means they were a seller of Matai, Indian sweets, Mm -hmm. or Dorbiwala, which means that they were laundry men. We connected our identities, our social identity, our family name, who we are, where we came from, to the things that we do and did and have done that for a long time. And it's really embedded fundamentally in the key moments of our lives, right? When we take the sacred vows with our partner, when we name our children and we register them in sort of government form. So we shouldn't understate the fundamental impact of these transitions and these exponential curves on who we are. We may have more sense of agility and mobility today in the Middle Ages in Europe, serfs who lived on the local sort of feudal baron's land were not allowed to work anywhere but on that land. So the notion mm. of job didn't exist, but even if it did, they weren't not just legally, but through their own identity allowed to go anywhere else. So we've got much more mobility, but we have to be pragmatic about the fact that these changes will have knock-on effects. And I've gone all the way back to a thing that every single one of us carries with us, which is our name uh, and how that gets impacted. 
It's so interesting. I'm going to take a sharp turn here because there's so much I want to get to with you. One of the things that makes your newsletter really unique, you do charts. You do the chart of the week. (laughs) When you put together these charts, has there been anything that has really surprised you once you've seen the data? That's a really great question. And I would say that having been doing this for seven or eight years, a lot of what we see now just reinforces the thesis. And we're just like, oh, well, look here, this thing is now looking exponential, right? Okay, oh, well, that's an exponential. Oh, yeah, there's another, you know, lithium-ion battery usage. It's an exponential. Uh, Renewable power in Texas. Oh, it's an exponential. Electric vehicles, it's an exponential. Use of chat GPT, oh, it's another exponential. We see a lot of that. But to that question of what has really surprised us, I think that one thing that is, actually, let me bring two, and they're both slightly geopolitical. So one has been that trade between China and the US has continued to grow even during this period of deglobalization. Its structure has slightly changed. It's still growing. The second thing I think that has somewhat surprised us has been the speed with which the demographic story has become a really interesting and important story. So someone in our group two or three years ago started to say we really need to keep an eye on demographics. And then in the last year, we've seen that China is below its replacement rate. There was perhaps not some accurate reporting from China that India now has a bigger population. And that has really got me thinking in the last six or nine months much, much harder about the demographic part of the story. And I think that a lot of that came through from seeing these charts, right? Seeing the population pyramid of India, which is nice and healthy, and the one of China, which is a bit sort of Italy, and then also starting to look at what was happening in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's so interesting to be able to put something in that physical chart form and, and point to it and say this this is what the data is telling us. So where can people find your Exponential View newsletter? Where can they get the charts? Where can they find you? Well, the newsletter is uh, exponentialview.co. So exponentialview.co and just in your web browser of choice. You can find me most usefully, if you're listening to this, via the Stern agency and go and look on the Stern website and, and search for me. Or I'm on Twitter at Azim. Of course, Twitter is changing. So sometimes it might be useful just to put my name into Google and, and see what the system do sure uh, is. And I'll throw that plug in that is sternstrategy.com. Before I let you go, we like to do a quick lightning round. Okay, three okay. questions. Haven't prepped you on these questions. I want to know the first thing that comes to your mind. In your opinion, what is today's single most consequential technology? Without a question, it's the uh, AI stuff that's coming out of large language models. Second question, what technology that did not exist when you were growing up? is taken for granted today? Oh, that's a really great question. You know, I would say that anything that's come out of the digital space is critical. You know, we, I did a count. When I was eight years old, we had one camera in our family. Uh, And when I published my book in 2021, I counted 58 cameras in our house because you know, the cars have got five and one of the household oh, yeah, yeah. cleaning things has got a camera on it and there are cameras all over our phone. So, so that digitization has meant that we totally take all of this for granted. We assume we can look at our phones and they open up and so on. Right, right, right. Somewhere in, in my mom's basement, I have one of those original Apple digital cameras. I'm still trying I'll to find it, it. But, but it's there. <laughs> it's there. So looking back in 20 years, what emerging technology do you think will have had the biggest impact on society? 
I'm going to sound like a broken record. It's going to be AI because it is a technology that invents other technologies and it enables humans incredibly. And it will help us crack the secrets of clean energy through nuclear fusion. It will help us make sense of quantum computing, which in turn will help us make more sense of AI. It will help us tackle the types of biochemistries that we need to build a prosperous, sustainable post-fossil economy. This will be, we say in, in Latin, primus inter pares, right? It'll be the first amongst equals. There'll be some other amazing technologies, but this will be the one that will have helped us get to the others. Okay, great. Is there anything else that you wanted to get to that we didn't get to? I think this is a really interesting time. It is both exciting and nerve-wracking. A word that I'm using quite a lot at the moment, kind of a rare specialist word, it's the word praxis. So not practice, but praxis. It is the idea that you don't know what to practice, right? You have to establish your method of dealing with the world, being adaptive and intelligent, coming up with a hypothesis of a theory, trying it out, reflecting on it, being a bit self-critical and going through that loop. And some people have been really lucky in their careers. I think I'm one where that process of kind of continuous learning was, was always part of what I had to do. But we're going to have to do this on a very, very wide scale. For me, it's exciting. I'm glad I can help people. I can also understand why it's somewhat uh, scary for others. It's a little intimidating, just a little. Yeah. So Azim, I appreciate so much you taking the time. And again, people can find your Exponential View newsletter online. Always interesting stuff every day. And again, I really appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Justin. Again, thank you so much to Azim Azar for joining Justin for that fascinating conversation on the future of technology and innovation. I'm Kenny Conrad from Stern's public relations team here to preview the next episode of Minds Worth Meeting, where we'll be joined by Mark Beal a public relations and marketing professional of 25 years who worked with major household brands and events like the World Series, U.S. Open, and Super Bowl. Following Mark's career as a public relations practitioner, he shifted into a new role as an educator and author with a deep focus on Gen Z. Mark teaches public relations at the Rutgers School of Communication and Information. Additionally, he has published seven books, most of which either provide lessons for Gen Z or lessons for millennials and boomers in living and working with Gen Z. His most recent book, ZEO, profiles what Gen Zers' leadership roles and styles will look like as they climb the corporate ladder. Stay tuned to hear from Mark on the next episode of Minds Worth Meeting. Minds Worth Meeting is a production of Stern Strategy Group. Our hosts are Kenny Conrad, Whitney Jennings, and Justin Lewis. Alan Halimsky is our video editor. The production team includes Kaylee Heverin and Meg Virig. Whitney Jennings is Stern Speakers and Advisors Marketing Manager. And Brandon Pantano is our Digital Marketing Director. Join us next time for another episode of Stern Strategy Group's Minds Worth Meeting, streaming on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. <laughs>